There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. That was so beautiful. If I could preach like she could sing, we'd have to go to three services. Because <laughs> we're going to be covering so many verses, I'm not going to have you stand. Uh, but I promise I'll read them all in your hearing. I won't cheat you any. Welcome back to our study in 1 Samuel. We have come to see that the God who had said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them the king, had in actuality been in control of all the apparent trivial circumstances that had led to this moment. Not one of the seemingly mundane events had occurred by chance. Everything had been worked together by God to bring Saul to the point where he would hear the word of God from the prophet Samuel. And by the way, just because someone says that they know the Word of God doesn't necessarily mean that they do. We have to be careful in who we trust. Let me tell you the story of one man who was sure that God had called him to preach. When he spoke to the ordination board, they told him that he would have to submit to an examination to which he readily agreed. Brother Fraley, can you read, he was asked. Yes, I can read reading, but I can't read writing, was his answer. This, of course, was a tad disturbing to the board. Well, okay, do you know your Bible? Yes, I show enough do. In fact, I'm pretty good in the Bible. I know my Bible from lid to lid, from generations to revolutions. (laughs) What part of the Bible do you like the best? Well, sir, I like the New Testament. The New Testament, I see. Well, then what book do you like the best? I like the book of parables. The entire board is now trying to hide their chuckling. Okay, which of the parables do you like the best? I like the parable of the Good Samaritan the best. Well, tell us about the Good Samaritan. All right. Once upon a time, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thorns, and they rose up and they choked him. So he went on. He didn't have any money, and the Queen of Sheba gave him a thousand talents of gold earrings and a hundred chances on a horse. He got into his chariot and drove furiously. And while he was driving under a tree, his hair caught among the limbs, and he hung there three days and three nights. The ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink, though. Now, one night while he was hanging there, his wife came along and cut his hair. And he fell on the stony ground where it rained 40 days and 40 nights. He hid himself in a cave where he met a man who said, Come have supper with me, to whom he said, I have married a wife and cannot come now. So the man went to the highways and byways and compelled him to come and have supper with him. After supper, he went to Jericho, and sitting in a high window was Jezebel. When she saw him, she laughed at him, and so they flung her from the window. And they flung her down, and they flung her down some more, and they flung her down some more, until seventy times seventy and seventy times more, and the fragments they picked up was twelve baskets shook down for good measure." 
I can only pray that is not a true story. But I've seen enough over the years that it wouldn't surprise me at all. The last time we were together, we left our story in chapter 9, where we'll pick up this morning in verse 25. When they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. And they arose early, and at daybreak Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up that I may send you away. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you remain standing now that I may proclaim the word of God to you. I think the most striking thing about the early part of this story that we've been following since the beginning of 1 Samuel has been the utter ordinariness of it. Who would have thought that the frustrating expedition searching for his father's lost donkeys would eventually have historic importance for the nation of Israel and even to our world today? The circumstances and events, at least in the early part of this chapter, seem mundane, or we may even say trivial in their nature. But all that brings us to our scene this morning. Samuel is about to reveal to Saul the incredible things that are about to take place in his life. Look at chapter 10, verse 1 with me. And Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? The very first thing that Samuel does, he pours the anointing oil over a probably very perplexed Saul. Now, the idea of anointing a king wasn't peculiar to Israel. The nations surrounding Israel also would anoint their kings and their leaders. But in the pagan lands, they would use animal fat to anoint because they believed that by pouring the fat of a bull or an ox upon their head and rubbing it into their head, that somehow that individual would be infused with the strength and the power of the bull or the ox. But when God gave his anointing to his people, it wasn't from the fat of an animal, but from the olive tree mixed with spices. Now, why would I bring that out? Because God's anointing wasn't meant to make men like animals, but to show us that we are to be rooted and grounded in the things of God in order to bring fruit to the glory of God. As a seer, Samuel is a type of the Holy Spirit who searches out the deep things of God. You've come to the right place, Samuel said. But before I give you any information about your lost donkeys, I want you to sit here at the table with me. Now, Saul could have said, my dad is worried. I have a job to do. Thanks, but no thanks. I don't have time to sit here at this table. But Saul didn't do that. To his credit, he heard what the seer said and sat down. Now, I suggest that a practical picture is being painted in this vignette that we cut, uh, touched on a couple of weeks ago. That is, like Saul, we are often worried about things that are ultimately not all that important. God will take care of those things, but there is a bigger calling, a grander picture. There is a divine design for each of our lives. Therefore, when you feel overwhelmed by problems and tensions, burdens and frustrations, just slow down. And wait on the Lord. It's not about your problem. It's not about my lost donkeys. It's about us being royally anointed by God to be used by him eternally. 
And to prove that this is from God, Samuel will give Saul three signs that will come to pass. He says, first, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb. Well, why Rachel's tomb, you may be wondering. One commentator I read had this to say. He says, the physical geography is less important than the historical association suggested by Rachel's tomb. Immediately following Saul's anointing, we are reminded of Israel's origins. The future of the Lord's heritage is connected with its beginnings. Rachel was Jacob's second wife and the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. She was therefore not only Israel's matriarch, but her tomb was a reminder of the origins of Saul's own tribe, Benjamin. By reminding us of the beginnings of Israel, and in particular of Benjamin, Rachel's tomb points us back to the book of Genesis where the promises of God that defined Israel's existence was first laid out. And I think that is correct. But I would also add, by telling Saul to stand at this tomb of this great woman, the Lord is reminding him of this. This very important woman in Israel's history died. And one day, you will die also. And all kings need to know that. Like the Thomas Gray poem, the boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth ever gave, awaits alike the inevitable hour, the paths of glory lead but to the grave. Wise is the man, and prudent is the woman, who realize that this life is but a vapor that appears for just a moment and then dissipates like the summer dew. Journalist Harold Smith wrote an autobiography entitled Events Leading to My Death. That's his biography. Isn't that good? Events Leading to My Death. Because that is essentially what every human life is. It is a series of events leading to our inevitable death. So God is saying, I want you to remember, Saul, that you are mortal, which is derived from a French word that would be translated doomed to die. You are human, taken from humus, which reminds us that we are but animated dirt on a funeral march from the cradle to the grave. There. Now have a nice day. You're thinking, good grief, this guy's depressing. I should have stayed home and watched the cooking channel. Finally, Samuel tells Saul that the elusive donkeys have been found. I like what Samuel says because there will be times when we, too, lose our donkeys, and we feel real burdens and anxieties. And as he did to Saul, God would say to us also, I want to help you with that. We need to remember and realize that the things that concern us concern God also. Even to the point when we don't act like little Jesus sunbeams and are everything but holy, even then he understands and get this, he doesn't love us any less. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw with confidence to the throne of grace that we may see, receive mercy and help and find grace in our time of need. Now, we don't approach the throne with arrogance, but with confidence, and there's a difference. We have confidence in what? In our goodness? Hardly. No, we approach the confidence of his goodness, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
that means we can keep leaning on that invisible arm that has supported us in the past. And we can trust that the one who can shape a galaxy on the tip of his tongue can also shape blessings out of my weaknesses and my pain. Don't know who all in particular that was for this morning, but I know I was supposed to say it. Look at verse 3 with me. And you shall go on forward from there and come to Oka Tabor. There are three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you the two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. Now, this oak tree is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, but in Genesis 35, there is an oak mentioned that lies below Bethel. And at the oak of Tabor, Saul would meet three young men going up to Bethel, but we're not positive if it's the same tree. But once again, the significance of this place lies in its association in the book of Genesis. Bethel, or the house of God, received its name from Jacob's extraordinary encounter with God that he had there. And Bethel was the place where God repeated his astonishing promises to Jacob, which were the promises that would define Israel. These men would greet Saul and give him two of the three loaves, and he was to receive them from their hand. I think here God was showing Saul not only could he solve his problems, but he could also supply his daily needs. And as the first king of Israel, he would have to raise up an army and provide the food and the equipment to keep them going. And he would have to depend upon the Lord to do this. Also keep in mind that the bread and the wine are the elements of communion, which I will tie in at the very end of the sermon. Verse 5. After that, you should come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. And it will happen when you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. The first surprise to me is that there is a garrison of the Philistines there. The fact that there is a garrison of the Philistines so far in the Israelite territory is quite alarming. And it suggests to us that the Philistines had once again became a very serious threat. And that the Philistine presence was located at a place known as the Hill of God, only added insult to their injury. But do you know what else? No, Pastor Bill, what else? Well, the Lord had just anointed Saul as the new king, and almost immediately he runs face first into the enemy. That's often how it is with us also. Don't be surprised that right after God does something great and magnificent in your life, to find the enemy there to challenge and to confront you in whatever the Lord is wanting to do. As soon as Jesus was baptized, God thundered from heaven, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Now that had to be an incredible and an encouraging thing to hear. But what happened immediately after that? Jesus was taken out into the wilderness to be tempted 40 days. So let's not be shocked when trials and tribulations assault us. It could be for the very reason that God is pleased with us as well. In fact, it's a good sign because your enemy knows the things that God can do with even the weakest of his children. So early the next morning, Samuel accompanied Saul and his servant to the edge of the city, sent the servant on ahead, and then anointed Saul as the first king of Israel. And from that moment on, Saul was the leader over God's people, but only Samuel and Saul knew it at this time. 
How could young Saul be really sure that God had really chosen him? Well, as I said, Samuel was going to give him three signs, special occurrences that he would encounter as he made his way home. First, he would run into the two men who would give him the bread and tell him that the animals had been found. And he already knew that from Samuel. But this was a good experience for the young king, for it assured him that God could still solve any of his problems. I think one of Saul's greatest failures as a leader was his inability to take his hands off situations and let God work. In modern terminology, we would call Saul a control freak. Yet while Saul and his servant Samuel were dining with Samuel, God was at work saving the lost animals. Now, the third sign had to do with spiritual power. Saul would meet a band of prophets returning from worship at the high place, and they would all be prophesying. The Holy Spirit of God would then come upon Saul at that time, and he would join the prophets in their ecstatic worship. I think in this sign, God showed Saul that he could endue him with the power that he needed for service. 2 Corinthians 2.16 asks us, And who is sufficient for such things? This should be the question in the heart of every servant of God. And the only correct answer is 2 Corinthians 3.5, which reads, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency comes from God. However, sadly, later on, Saul would become very self-sufficient and rebellious, and the Lord would take his spirit from him. Verse 6, please. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man, and let it be. Years later, the Beatles wrote a song about that, by the way. They probably didn't get the idea from the book of First Samuel, though. Anyway, you heard it here first. Let it be when these signs, I give it to you like I get it. When these signs come to you, that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. So it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart, and all those signs came to pass that day. Now this is where it can get a little confusing because of the terminology in verse 6. What does it mean where it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and that he would prophesy? And finally, what does it mean when it says that he would be turned into another man? Let's take each one separately. First, the Spirit coming upon him. The breath of the Spirit of God coming upon a man had happened before in the Old Testament. Indeed, the presence of the threatening Philistines reminds us of Samson, of whom the powerful Spirit of God would come upon, empowering him to be a mighty Savior of Israel from the Philistines. Now, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would rest upon men. He would come for a particular time and for a particular task and then later be removed. When David sinned with Bathsheba and prayed in Psalm 51, he prayed, Please do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I think when David asked God not to take his Holy Spirit from him, I think he was thinking especially of what the Lord had done to Samuel. Now, of course, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit doesn't just rest on it. It now permanently resides in us. This is 2 Corinthians 1.21. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ Jesus and has anointed us to God, who has also sealed us and given us a spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That word establishes a business term and refers to the guaranteeing or the fulfilling of a contract. 
It was the assurance that the seller would give to the buyer that the product was as advertised or that the service would be rendered as promised. So for us, that means the indwelling Holy Spirit is not only the anointing and seal, but also the down payment or the guarantee of a believer's eternal inheritance. Or we could call it the first installment of future glory. So to sum it up, in the Old Testament era, God gave his Holy Spirit to chosen people to enable them to perform certain tasks, and then God would take the Spirit away later when it wasn't needed. But believers today who are under the new covenant have the Holy Spirit abiding with them forever, John 14, 16. Now, believers today can grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4, 30, and we can quench the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, but we can never drive him away. Now, the second part about the prophesying, we'll get to when we get to verse 10. So what does it mean when it says that Saul will be turned into another man? Some people read this verse and conclude that Saul was converted in the New Testament sense. Personally, I don't believe that he was ever converted. And this is just my opinion, so you may not want to take notes on this part. But it's not because of the material that we've already covered concerning him, but what is coming that makes me believe that Saul was not actually ever transformed. Someone is bound to say, but the Spirit of God came upon Saul and he was a different man. Yes, but the Spirit of God also came upon Balaam, and we have no proof that he was converted. And what about Judas? Christ sent out 12 disciples, and we are told that all of them performed miracles. Did Judas, Judas perform miracles? I think by the Scripture that he did. So, but we wouldn't say that Judas is converted. So let us withhold making a final decision about Saul until we reach the end of the book. But when Saul came from Samuel to start his journey home, it says he became a different man. But I wouldn't read New Testament regeneration into this statement. I think it refers primarily to a different outlook and a different attitude. Because think about it, this young farmer would eventually act like a leader, the king of a nation, a man whose responsibility it was to listen to God's voice and then obey his will. Now, of course, Saul will ultimately do this less and less, but that was by his own choosing. The Holy Spirit would further enable him to serve God as long as he walked in obedience to the will of God. But because Saul became proud and independent and rebelled against God, he lost the Spirit's power, he lost his kingdom, and he eventually lost his life. Just a quick couple quick comments on the next six verses, and then I'll let you go home and eat your pork chop sandwiches. When they came to there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. And it happened, when all who knew him formally saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, the people said to one another, What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Then a man from there answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he went to the high place. And Saul's uncle said to him and the servant, Where did you go? So he said to look for the donkeys. When we saw that they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Tell me, please, what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the manner of the kingdom he did not tell him what Samuel had said. 
Now, it's important to realize that the word prophecy and prophesy in the Bible does not always refer to foretelling the future. Sometimes prophecy can be foretelling of God's word and teaching, or in this case, singing and worship. The verb prophesy simply means to speak before. Now, this gift often includes both the idea of foretelling and foretelling, predicting the future, and preaching. A prophet was God's mouthpiece. He spoke for God and gave the people God's message. Now, sometimes that message was regarding the future. Other times, it concerned the past, even the present, or simply it would be doctrinal truth. But it was always God's message spoken forth. So what's the deal with this saying here is Saul among the prophets. This is the Old Testament version of when pigs fly or when hell freezes over. Can I say when hell freezes over? Should have cleared that first probably. It is meant as a comment on a very unlikely event. And notice that Saul didn't tell his uncle that he would one day be the king. Instead, as Mary, the mother of Jesus, would do, he simply heard the word of the Lord and then pondered it in his heart. I believe that is a great word for us also this morning. There should be far more pondered in our hearts than we ever speak about. Some people speak about everything they hear or think they hear. On the other hand, it's been my experience that the deepest people seem to know a lot more than what they talk about. Deep people have experiences that they don't always share, intimate secrets between them and the Lord. Sometimes the people we may think are the least spiritual because they are quite, in actuality, may be the most spiritual. Now, in closing, and to try to tie all this together, in this passage, I see the three signs given to Saul for Samuel to be the three experiences that a man or woman must have in order to be effective in the ministry. And they are as following. The care of the Father, the communion with the Son, and the anointing with the Spirit. The message of the first group from Saul that Saul would meet was that his father missed him. So, too, for anyone can ever impact anybody for the Lord, he or she must know the love of the Father's, the father's love for them in their own heart. Because if we don't have a firm understanding of the Father's love in our heart, and that he cares about everything that we're going through and everything that we're dealing with, we will never be a minister of grace. We'll be one who talks about principles and procedures, but we will never have that tender, gracious, compassionate kind of ministry that God desires. Secondly, just as Saul met a group carrying the bread and the wine, the elements of communion, likewise with us, there also has to be fellowship with the Son. And finally, It says that Saul was anointed by the Holy Spirit and prophesied with the prophets. Just as anyone who truly wants to be used by God today and to communicate his word, we must be changed by and filled with his Holy Spirit to be able to do that. And it's only, I think, when a person realizes the nature of the Father and has a communion with the Son and operates in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that they can ever become a true minister. Well, as next Sunday is the fifth Sunday of the month, come back next week as Elder Haynes will be bringing us the word. The week after that, I will be bringing us an Easter message, and then we'll be back in 1 Samuel, so I look forward to seeing you. Or I will assume that you are hiding among the baggage 
read ahead to find out what I'm talking about. 